Um, so here's, <laughs> this changes everything. Like, this changes everything. This is a phrase that I keep hearing myself say. This changes everything. Ever since like Advent, uh, we've been going through the life of Jesus, and I keep hearing myself as, like, it's not even in my notes, but I just keep saying, like, and this changes everything. I, I just keep saying this consistently as we've walked through and uncovered some of the ramifications of the life and the teachings of Christ from his birth forward. So let me give you a couple examples of the things that we've been talking about in recent months and, and what I mean by the impact that they make. The message of the season of Advent, right, that crescendos all the way to Christmas is that God has come to be with us. And this changes everything, right, right out of the gate. God with us, God in the flesh, God the incarnation Becoming the creator of all becomes a person, specifically a little baby boy named Jesus. He has come to live with and as one of us. So the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's this, it's this, and then it changed. In the past, it was prophets, and now it's by his son, who the writer of Hebrews says is the heir of all things and through whom God created the universe, in case you were wondering who the son is. Uh, God is no longer just sending messages to us. This is why this is such a big deal. God himself has come to dwell with us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God in the beginning. And then, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is like his earth-shattering um, statement. One paraphrase says, God became a human and moved into the neighborhood. And this changes everything, right? This just changes everything. Another example, right after the season of Advent, Christmas is this little short season called Epiphany. The word means the revealing, like the, the, recon, the, the, the I've come to understand it, like the seeing clearly moment. And we read the story of the baptism of Jesus at Epiphany. Luke writes, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And it's really an interesting dynamic that's full of tension right from the start. Like John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus, he's like, you don't need to be baptized. You haven't sinned. You don't need to repent of anything. John is thinking, why, am I, why are we doing this cleaning thing to someone who is not unclean? But Jesus insists because Jesus is going to show the world what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. And so this is going to be part of that. Jesus is going to show the world what it means to be a human as humans were designed to be, that is, in relationship with their creator. He's going to show it to us. He's going to reveal it to us. This is the epiphany. So said another way, Jesus is being baptized um, because through Jesus, God is going to open the way for all of humanity to be filled with the spirit of God and to be a son or a daughter of God. So the epiphany is this, that God becomes one of us so that we can become sons and daughters of God. That changes everything. I mean, that just it's a game changer. I mean, the, it takes the ceiling off of what is possible in terms of restoration. You were created to be a son or a daughter of God. Complete game changer. We continue through the life of Jesus into the, into the spring, into the season of Lent, which leads to this Good Friday, where we remember and we come face to face. We even get our hands dirty here in this community, like with a hands-on practice 
of the reality that God not only became a human to live as one of us, but he also died for us. That's the message of Good Friday. Jesus takes the full weight of the sin and the brokenness and the injustice upon himself and personally suffers the full consequence of the weight of the sin of the world. The full consequence is death, and that's what Jesus experiences on the cross. In other words, as the prophet Isaiah wrote, like a thousand years before Christ was born as a human, Isaiah writes this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, this long-expected Messiah, the iniquity of us all. This changes everything. Your debt has been paid. You have been forgiven. A way has been made for you to be free from any consequence of your own selfishness and the selfishness of others. You have been freed. You've been forgiven. This is a game changer. Every world religion is based on the basic idea that you earn your way in. You pay to play. You must work to be accepted. You must perform well in order to escape God's wrath. You got to be perfect to even have a shot at God's affection. Every religious system is a scorecard. Every religious system is a ladder, and the, and the message is go climb it. Every religion says you got to earn God's love. Accept the way of Jesus. Accept the message of Christ. Accept the movement called Christianity. In Christianity, the message is for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son who died for your sin so that all who believe in him, they don't have to die but can have eternal life, life fulfilled, the most meaningful life, the fullness of life in Christ. This changes everything. I mean, it just changes it. Then we come to the day that shakes the foundation of reality as we know it when Jesus, who was killed, is raised again, right? On Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, so not only has, has Jesus lived and died for us, but then he rises again to life. The message is so much more than Jesus died for your sins. That's critical, and it's a game changer. But it's so much more than Jesus died for your sins. The message is Jesus is alive, and this, this changes everything, right? Literally, this alters the boundaries of what we understand as life. Death, which has forever had the last word, which for nearly all of human history has been the period at the end of the sentence, is erased and replaced with a comma. It's no longer where the story ends. So forever, the story of life was birth, life, death, period. But that's not the story anymore. Now the story is birth, life, death, comma, resurrection, right? exclamation points for eternity. I mean, that's, that's now the story. It's a game changer. Changes everything. The rules get rewritten. The end gets recategorized as no longer the end. The enemy is defeated. The battle is won. The curse on humanity is undone. The kingdom comes. The restoration of all things actually begins, and it's never the same after the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, it's not over. Um, I, I cannot ever say that all is lost, and I always have a reason for hope. 
Because of the resurrection, it changes everything. And then the story doesn't end there. 40 days after Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he takes his rightful place again of authority. That's the ascension. And then 10 days after that, or 50 days after the day of the resurrection, something happens that changes everything again and the church is born. That's what happens. The church is born. On this day, it's today. About 2,000 years ago, something happens that is so significant that it is an irreplaceable part of the story. The story of Christ and his mission is incomplete, which is like crazy to say, but it literally, it is an incomplete mission without what happens today. In fact, you and I never even hear about Jesus Christ except for what happened today. Without what happened today, uh, the, the message gets lost in history. Today is Pentecost Sunday and, you want to say it with me? It changes everything, everything. I mean, so we're going to read Luke's account of what happened on this day. It's recorded in a book called Acts, and then we're going to get into some really important details. But let me just complete this longest introduction ever uh, by saying this. Clearly, every major part of the story of Christ is so powerful and so significant that it changes everything. Every part, his birth, his baptism, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, every part reveals truth. Every part reveals reality to us. Every part of the story is a critical piece of the revelation of God, who he is, and his salvation for humanity. And so I think that it's totally accurate to say at each point along the way, at each major doctrine in the faith, which is tied to an event in the life of Christ, this changes everything. It's totally accurate to say that, but here's my point. In a culture that's always looking for a quick fix, in a culture that's always looking for an easy solution, a one-size-fits-all, a silver bullet, a secret that's going to unlock all problems, it can be easy to grab one part of the Jesus story and say, ah, this is it. This is it. This is what it all comes down to. This one part, this will change everything. But friends, here's the point. The wisdom of the historic church tells us this. It is not just one part of the story. It's the whole story that changes everything. It's the whole story that changes everything. Each part of the story confronts something in us. We need each part. One, it may be in one sense easier to sort of major in one part or really focus on one part at a certain season in your life or at a certain kind of work or ministry that you do, but the transformational power of the gospel is in the whole story, the whole story. Christianity is not a single event like a concert or a graduation ceremony or a financial transaction. Christianity is a way. It is a truth. Right? It is a whole life, and we need it. We need all of it. So the challenge is to resist the temptation to take one little part of the Jesus story and fit it into my life. Instead, the challenge is to take all of my life and pour it into the ocean of God's story and let it just get lost in that story, because that's salvation. Pouring my life into the story of God, that's the, sal- that's the whole story. Not taking a little piece off the shelf of what I like about his story and applying. That doesn't work. You need the whole thing. And we ultimately need to surrender our whole life to the whole story. So uh, let's read what is at least in one sense the last piece of the story uh, of the gospel, which is the story of Pentecost. You could argue that because does it ever really end? But let's read the story of Pentecost. This is in Acts chapter 2, 
Um, let's see. Are the notes? Do the notes show the page number? No. Oh, the screen does. Nice. I wonder who did that. 758. It's down in the lower corner. It's kind of hard to see. All right, here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Okay, Pentecost, big Jewish harvest festival. Think that, big Jewish harvest festival. This is one of the few Jewish holidays when the Jews would travel to Jerusalem. Anybody know what the other big holiday is when they would travel to Jerusalem? It's Passover. Passover celebrates the Hebrew slaves being freed from Egypt a long, long time ago. Lots of people, like hundreds of thousands of people are as pilgrims pour into Jerusalem for a big party. That's Passover. Think Jesus, Last Supper. That's, the, that's what they're celebrating at the Last Supper, Thursday night. A few days after the Passover feast is another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. Trivia question, what happens on the Feast of First Fruits the year Jesus was crucified? He's raised from the dead. It's Easter. That's the day. The Feast of First Fruits is just a few days after Passover. This is incredible. He comes to life on the first fruits. He, he rises again. Paul later calls Jesus the uh, firstborn from among the dead. In other words, like he uses this first fruit sort of idea of the first of the harvest, the first of what will sustain life to come. Then, 50 days after Jesus is raised from the dead, another huge feast, Pentecost today. Pentecost means 50 days, and this is a big harvest festival. And they celebrate not the first harvest, but the fullness of the harvest. This is the big one. This is like, think big harvest festival, which is going to eat for a long, long time. So that's the context for this story. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Luke is writing about the followers of Jesus. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a... Okay, suddenly, slow down a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What's the word that stands out to you from that strange description. Is there a word that stands out? It's repeated. It shows up twice. It's, I think so too. Tongues. Like what in the world is that? What's going on there? It's the same word used twice, but that's used in different ways. The first place it's used is tongues of fire. Here the tongue is being used to refer to that muscle in your mouth, your tongue. And I don't know if fire's ever been described as like a tongue, but that's the way Luke describes it here. Fire falls from the ceiling, separates into little flames. They hover over each individual. What he actually writes is they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So the sound, not wind, but a sound like a violent wind, he's trying to describe it, fills a room, what seem to be tongues of fire fall on every person, it actually sounds kind of scary to me. It sounds like the room's about to collapse or something significant like that. Are they frightened? Luke doesn't tell us. He just says that there are tongues of fire, and then he uses the same word again in a different sense. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak 
in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's interesting that in the Hebrew language and the Greek language, the word for tongue is uh, the same. Both for tongue and language is the same word. Like we even have this in English, like uh, what is your native tongue? You understand what I mean, right? It's the same word. Um, and it's understood that it can mean both the physical muscle in your mouth as well as the language that you're speaking. So Luke's trying to describe this wild scene, sound of wind, tongues of fire, speaking different languages, in order to describe what actually happened on Pentecost, which is this. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is his way of trying to describe something that has never happened before, in a sense. How in the world does he know that this has happened? Well, the disciples who were there, Luke's not there, he comes later, but the disciples, they remember two things. They remember uh, something like tongues of fire falling on each of them. There's this visible, physical phenomenon that, that they witness. And then they remember immediately speaking in languages that they didn't go to school to learn. Speak proclaiming the wonders of God in languages that are not their own. So that's what happens. Let's look at the response to what happens. And then let's look at the significance of what happens. All right. Verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? Why were there God-fearing Jews from every nation under, uh, under heaven? Because it's the festival, right? It's the Pentecost festival. So there's, peace. there's Jews from all over the world that they've come to celebrate this big celebration. They've traveled to Jerusalem. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? A Galilean is somebody who's from Galilee, which is a little podunk fishing town in the north from which a lot of Jesus' disciples come, like Peter, James, and John. Apparently there's an accent, a way of dress, some identifier. You could walk down the road and go, that's a Galilean. So they're surprised because all of these guys are from the same town it's not necessarily known for being an educated place, and they're all speaking, uh, and what is being heard is the, is the wonders of God being proclaimed in languages that all these people from around the world understand. Verse, nine, or verse 8, they ask, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language, native tongue, is, is literally what it says. And then there's a list of like 12 or 14 parts of the world that all have different languages that are all represented right there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then Peter just explains it all to them in what is both, or three things. His first big sermon, which is brilliant. It's the first indication that we get that something has actually shifted in Peter. He has gone from afraid and guilty 
to full of courage. He's actually stepping into the truth of his actual identity. His mama named him Simon. Peter calls him, I mean, Jesus calls him Peter. You're the rock. He hasn't acted like the rock yet. But now he's going to step into his real identity as the rock. He's, going to, he's actually going to lead the church here. It's beautiful. And then a third thing here is the sermon is so remarkably effective. When Peter starts preaching, there's 120 followers of Jesus in the whole world. And by the time he's finished preaching, 3,000 people have embraced the message of Christ, have been baptized, and have joined the movement of Jesus. I mean, what in the world just happened? What did we just witness? What happened there? Well, to quote Luke 2, 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what happened. And that changes everything. Okay. The church is born. The church is filled with the Spirit of God. And forever forward, when people hear the word Pentecost, they're not thinking Harvest Festival anymore. They're thinking that's the day when the church was born. That's the day when the the, the Spirit of God fell like fire on the followers of Christ and they were changed and they then went forward and changed the whole world. It can be easy to think Pentecost changed everything and in a sense that's true. But I think what's even more true, what's even more complete in other words, is that this whole story changes everything. From the birth of Christ all the way to the filling of the church with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the whole story and the whole story is on fire. In one sense, the filling of the people with the Holy Spirit is a new thing. It is unprecedented in this sense. But what Peter's sermon, which we won't take time to read, reveals, and what other early Christian sermons in Acts reveal, is that it is not so much a new thing as it is the culmination, or the fulfillment, or the full harvest, the completion of the thing that was started, yes, at the resurrection, but even before that, thousands of years ago, which we might describe as God's long mission of crashing heaven into earth. This is the culmination of heaven crashing into earth. Or to quote Jesus, the kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. You with me so far? Okay, last part. So what? What does this mean? What's the message? Um, Let's look at it kind of symbolically because that's that's what Luke the writer is doing. He wants us to see something here that others even in that day missed because they didn't get the history of it. There's a few symbols that you can trace all through the Bible that reveal the message of the Bible. One of them, I'll just take time for one, one of the most consistent and clearly one of the most consistent symbols in this story is the reality of fire. Fire as a key symbol um, in the Bible and specifically a key symbol in this story of Pentecost. So look again at the key verse in this story, verse 3 and 4. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And then all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So they're speaking in other tongues, and there's tongues of fire coming to rest on them. This is what's connected here. It makes me think, where else in the Bible is the Word of God and fire connected? Where else in the Bible do we see this symbol of fire and this reality of God communicating God's truth to people? Where else do we see that? We can trace this symbol through, like a through line, and we can arrive at the message of the text. 
Four scenes really quickly where we see the message of God and fire. The first, there's a bush in Exodus. Remember the bush? Right? Very early in the story, the Hebrews are still enslaved in Egypt. Moses, who will later be their leader and their liberator, is at this point just a shepherd for his father-in-law in another land. One day, Moses is shepherding along, and he sees a bush. But there's something remarkable about the bush. What's remarkable about the bush? It's on fire, right? But it is not being consumed. He approaches the bush, and then something else remarkable happens from the bush. It talks to Moses, which would throw me a little bit, I got to admit. Moses understands the voice to be the voice of God. And then so the burning bush is an early symbol of the presence of God, God's power, God's voice, heaven crashing into earth. This is a thin place. He's dealing with sheep and deserts, and he's dealing with the creator of the universe at the same time. A second example, the idea of the speaking power, presence of God and fire showing up together. There's a tabernacle, right? After the, uh, the Hebrews get freed from slavery in Egypt, they're moving around with the centerpiece of their existence is this sort of mobile chapel. And this is late in Moses' life. He's answered the call of God. He's set the prisoners free. He's leading them through the desert to the promised land. And the focal point of this nomadic community is their place of worship. It's a tent. They call it the tabernacle. And do you know what is above the tabernacle? A pillar of fire. I don't know. A big pillar of fire. And when the pillar of fire moves... Everything moves with it. Like they pick up and move the, the tabernacle, their own little tents, and they follow. Pillar of smoke by day, pillar of fire by night. And if you want to know where God is, you just look for the pillar of fire because that's where God is. That is the place from which God speaks. That is the assurance of his presence. That is the physical depiction of his power and his reality. The temple. Fire over the temple. Third example, I mean the tabernacle. Third example is there's a temple. So much later, the Jews have established a kingdom. And the Jewish king David's son, Solomon, builds God a house. And they call it the temple. David wanted to build God a house, but God said, who even told you I wanted a house? Right? And so later, Solomon is able to build God this amazing house. It's an architectural wonder. It's full of gold and beauty and all this kind of majesty. But more important than any of that is that at one point, something remarkable happens at the temple. You know what it is? God moves in. <laughs> and it's remarkable. The smoke is so thick, the priests have to stop performing their duties. Solomon is praying a prayer of dedication. And then when he finishes the prayer, fire comes down from heaven and goes in the temple and consumes all the offerings. And it says in uh, 2 Chronicles 7 that the Lord's glory filled the temple. This, let me just read this to you. This is 2 Chronicles 7. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites um, saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. It's beautiful. That's their understanding of his character. As fire fills the room, 
but doesn't consume anything except that which is intended as a holy offering to the Lord. Powerful. And it was the fire coming down from heaven that was the sign of the presence of God and the power of God with them. You got a bush, you got a tabernacle, and you got a temple. And then the fourth example is this. Hundreds of years later, Moses memory, Solomon, ancient hero, the Jewish people been scattered all over the world through the conquests of other nations, and a little band of followers of this unknown Jewish rabbi named Jesus from this nowhere place called Nazareth are gathered together in the same place on Pentecost Sunday, and suddenly, like a blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven this sound, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What is going on? What does this mean? Some who don't know, who have no context for this, who haven't paid attention in synagogue, they don't know the old stories, they write it off as meaningless. Oh, they've had too much wine. They miss it. But others like Peter finally understand. They are finally getting it. Heaven is crashing into earth again. And God's presence and God's power is filling a new temple. The old temple that Solomon built, it's long been destroyed. The fire never fell on the new temple, the one that Herod built. It never happened. They thought it would. They were so confused when it didn't. And then Jesus is born, and Jesus lives, and Jesus dies, and Jesus rises again. And then 10 days later, he ascends into heaven But the presence and the power of God is now being poured out again on the earth. And this time, the the power of God is being poured out not in a bush and not in a tabernacle and not in the temple. But the presence of God is now filling women and men. They are on fire with the very presence of God in them. This is what the story has been tilting towards, friends, from the beginning. This was always the plan. Buildings and bushes were always just helpers to get us to the point where we could even comprehend that the power of God was intended to be in us. This is the point. This is what John the Baptist meant when he said, I baptize with water, but somebody is coming who's way more powerful than me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 14, he says, okay, I'm going to go, but I'm going to ask the Father to send you the spirit of truth. And you know what? You know him because he's with you. But then Jesus says this, and he will be in you says. There's a shift that's going to happen. Right? Someone put it like this. On Pentecost, God is marking out new temple space. He is creating new containers, the intended ultimate container for his divine presence. He is saying from now on, my presence, my power, my word, my spirit, it lives in you. It's for the church. 
It's for the, the, the collected uh, assembly of those called out as followers of Christ. Friends, this changes everything. The whole story is on fire. The spirit of the living God is poured into the church. So we should get on with it, right? We've got what we need to join in the restoration mission of God. We don't have to rely on our education, our experience, all this kind of stuff that our culture just continues to emphasize. Because we've been, not that those things can't be, aren't good and can't be used. Of course they are and can be. But we can rely on the power of God to uh, fuel forward the good mission of God um, being, being lived out by you guys, right? By us. So may the Spirit fall on us again. May he renew and refresh uh, both his presence in us and our awareness of the ramifications of his presence and his power. Let's pray together. I just pray for a peek, Lord, just a peek, a glimpse into the significance of this day and the significance of these of these truths that have been proclaimed and recorded and shared for so long, God. May things that have become familiar to us burn in us again. Uh, and may we, um, maybe we experience this. I pray that the reality of your love, presence, power, goodness would come off the pages of our Bibles and, the, and we would experience them personally. I pray, Father, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit again today. I pray that you would fill this church with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that those uh, longing for an assurance of your presence, longing for power beyond their own, Lord, willing to submit their um, wills to your will would be filled with your Holy Spirit, empowered to live for you and to make a difference in this world. And I pray in the name of Christ, amen.